Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Unforbidden Truth. I'm Andrew. On this episode, I'll be speaking with convicted Ohio murderer Jeffrey Hill. Jeffrey Hill is convicted of murdering his mother, Emma Hill. He stabbed his mother to death in 1991 as she lied dying dead in her Cincinnati apartment. He took $20 that she had on her at the time to spend on drugs. He returned later that day as she was dead and took another $80 from the apartment. He was arrested later that night and he was charged with aggravated robbery, aggravated murder, and theft. Hill was ultimately convicted and sentenced to death on June 19, 1992. His death sentence was commuted to life with the possibility of parole in 2009, three weeks before he was scheduled to be executed, crazy enough. I speak to Jeffrey about his life prior to prison, the murder of his mother, and his life in prison. Jeffrey Hill was actually paroled September 1, 2020, and is now a free man. Here's my interview with convicted Ohio murderer Jeffrey Hill. Hello, this is a prepaid call from... Jeffrey Hill. An inmate at the London Correctional Institution. What was your childhood like growing up? Well, prior to my mom having a stroke, my, my childhood was, it was all right. It was, you know, we always went places, did things, had a lot of fun in the earlier years. Um, it was great. I mean, as far as, you know, from a child's perspective, we never wanted for anything, you know. Um, like I said, it was it was a good life. I don't, you know, I can't see anything that was wrong. Did you come from a single parent household? It was just your mother raising you. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We came from a single parent household. It was me and my brother. So you came from a fairly decent childhood. Was there any type of trauma, abuse, sexual, physical, emotional from your mother or anybody in your family that? was either done onto you or your brother or both? No, not earlier on in our our childhood, no. Did you ever suffer any type of abuse in your life? I mean, like after my mom had her stroke, she changed. She became what people called abusive. How old were you when she had her stroke? About 10. What kind of behaviors did she exhibit towards you and your brother after her stroke? really recall her whooping us to the extreme to where like we got whoopings but we got whoopings with switches and stuff like that switches uh when i say you know a switch off a tree she would she would whoop us with switches or or belt but after she had her stroke you know the whoopings got extreme we would get uh whooped with racing cars 
Yeah, and you know those um, what was the yellow ending car um, racetracks? Were these beatings due to disciplinary behaviors? Was she yeah. trying to punish you, or was she just trying to straight out abuse you with no reason? I guess you you couldn't really justify a beating. I say I said it was justified because you know it was always at the onset of uh, me doing something wrong or me violating one of her rules. This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. So she was, you know, she was with us uh, with uh, brooms, uh, mop handles. You know, that's how the beatings went. Whatever she grabbed, that's what the whipping was going to be based upon. Right. Did Did you resent your mother growing up because of that? I didn't know I resented her, you know, but I, I definitely harbored some feelings towards her because, you know, I thought it, I just thought it was extreme, but I didn't know it was extreme. I just, I just knew that I had to get up out of there. I couldn't take too much there. Let's fast forward a little bit in your life. What was your school life like, you know, early years? you know, elementary, middle school, and high school. I know you dropped out in ninth grade, but up until ninth grade, what was what was your behavior like in school? You know, were you a good student, class clown, bully, picked on? I was good. I was. I mean, I, I love school. I, I would get A's and B's in school. I wasn't bullied in school or nothing like that. I was... Yeah, I'll never recall being bullied. I know I wasn't bullied. Was too quick to be bullied. So you dropped out of high school in ninth grade. What were the circumstances with that? I had to take care of my mom because she, uh, you know, due to her stroke, she was limited with what she could do. She was paralyzed, right? Was it was it her entire body, left side, or? No, nah, it was her right side. You drop out of school in ninth grade to take care of your mother that's paralyzed. Let's get into your case. When you were 26 years old, you murdered your mother by stabbing her 10 times in her Cincinnati apartment. Can you explain what led up to the murder at that point in time? Um, what pushed you to do this? Why? What was the motive? What was going on in my life during that time? It was, it was, it was chaotic. Um... I had I had a lot of responsibility. Now, let me explain something. I'm not making any excuses for anything that I did. I take full responsibility for what I did. I'm not trying to minimize anything or justify bad behavior. I'm not trying to do any of that. I'm just telling you the facts of what happened that led up to me stabbing my mother, as you say, 10 times. Uh, during that time of my life, I just had a lot of different things going on, and it start everything started with my dad passing. I'm like months prior to that, uh, my dad died. I was he, he he died of cancer, and when he um, I didn't find out until he was in his final stages what was really going on. Even though I was there, nobody was telling me what was going on. And by the time I found out how serious it was, he just died. And it put me in a bad place. The day that I buried my father, I was, I was high. 
I had started doing crack cocaine when I found out that he was dying. Was that the first time you smoked crack, or had you done it prior to that? No. It was, it was around the time that my father was, was dying. When I found out that he was dying, that's when I started, got hooked on the crack. So during that time, I was struggling to... Uh, deal with everything that was going on, uh, trying to bury him, um, trying to take care of my kids, trying to make sure my mom and everybody in my life that I was had been looking out for was okay. And it, it was, it was like I, I, had, I was carrying all this weight and I didn't know how to carry it. And I didn't really have, I felt that I didn't have anybody there that I could talk to, so I turned to drugs. And I thought I was in control during that time. I thought I was in control of getting high because I was still going to work. I was still doing everything that I was normally doing, except that now I had an addiction that was spiraling out of control, and I didn't know that it was spiraling out of control. And fast forward, months later, I'm still dealing with the loss of my father passing. And what I didn't know at the time that I had all these issues towards my mom, I, I didn't know how deeply rooted these issues were. I didn't find all of that out until years later where all that anger came from. And I had my mom that wanted me to come over to her house and talk to her about why I had been neglecting her by not coming around like I normally do. Only time my mom would really see me is when I would take money over there or she would press me to come over there because what I was trying to do was hide my addiction from her. She knew something was wrong, but she couldn't figure out what it was and she wanted to talk to me about it and I was trying to avoid having that conversation with her because one I was afraid to tell her that I was addicted that I needed help I wanted to ask for help but I didn't know how she would perceive it I, because of my guilt and the shame that I was carrying around I didn't I didn't think that she would help why, why I thought that way, I don't know, but that's how I was thinking during that time. I didn't think anybody would help me, so I never, I tried to hide it from everybody that was close to me. And the day that I went over to my mom's house, my addiction had gotten to, it was in a very, very bad place where I had developed around a $400 a day habit. And... I was just really out of control as far as that was concerned. But once again, like I said at the time, I didn't even know that it just spiraled out of control. Like that, I, I honestly thought that I was in control. And reality was that I wasn't. Because me and my mom got into an argument that day over me stealing money from her. And at that particular time, the love for that drug outweighed the love for my mom and I ended up taking her. I chose getting high over loving my mom that day. And that's how my mom lost her life. 
what was the exact reason that you had murdered your mother that day? Was there something that she said that set you off? Was was everything just building up and you snapped? What exactly happened for it to get to that point where you stabbed your mother to death? She just told me no. I asked her for some money and she told me no. And that was good. When I heard no, I heard no, I'm not giving you any money to continue. I, that's not exactly what she said. She didn't say that. She just said no. Because I had just got paid like two or three days prior to that after I had just took her some money. So when I heard that no, I just heard no. From my perspective, it was like, nah, I don't have anything for you. So I was couldn't figure out how I was going to get that next high. And the next thing you know, I had stabbed my mom. And I hadn't even realized that I had stabbed her at that time. One of the things that I've always tried to figure out was where did all the anger come from? Because growing up in my mom's house, it was like, I may have been angry at her whooping us or something like that or chastising us for not doing something i might have been angry but i didn't know that that anger was that deep in me like to the point to where i resented her for how she treated me and my brother it wasn't enough for me to just say one of the things that i've never done is said that it was the drug it wasn't the drug it was the choices that I made that led me down the path that I went to that ultimately played a part in my mom losing her life. So you stabbed your mother 10 times to death. And what's what's your next actions after that? What do you do? Your mother's laying on the floor dead. What's running through your head? What do you do next? What do I do now? I went inside her house and look at the money and then after. I found what I found the money. I went and got continued to get hot. So the first the first thing that came to mind is I need to go get some crack. I didn't know that my mom was dead at that point. I didn't even realize that I had stabbed my mom at that point. In order to understand what I'm saying, you would have had to at one point in time be addicted to some type of drug to where it clouded your senses to the point to where you, you didn't realize. It was kind of like a blackout. I had blacked out what I had done. My only concern was getting that high. As crazy as it sounds, that's what was going through my mind. It was like, I didn't realize I had my mom until I was, it was two or three days later after I was in jail. and. They started to help me to put all the pieces together. That's when I realized what I had done. So you murder your mom, you steal some money, and you go get some crack. Um, and essentially, you just go on a binge, not knowing that your mother's dead. And after you realize your mother is dead, do you realize you're the one responsible for this? Do you think somebody else did it? Do you remember the events of the murder even days later? I, I went through a phase to where I thought somebody else did it. It couldn't have been me. You know, I went through that phase 
but the reality of the situation was it was me. And once I realized that it was me, you know, I had to, I had to, I had to start dealing with that. But I still didn't know how to deal with that because once again, I was still feeling the effects of being high. Now here it is that I'm coming down off this high, and I didn't even know what it was that I was experiencing at that time. I was, that's how bad of a place I was in, and it was it was up and down. It was up and down with my uh, feelings and emotions. So the same day you're charged with the murder of your mother. And inevitably, you're you're convicted of her murder and sentenced to death on June nineteenth, nineteen ninety two. What was it like being on death row? I know you were you were uh, commuted to life in two thousand nine, so you spent seventeen years on death row. What was it like knowing every single day you were one day closer to your inevitable death, sitting on death row, waiting to essentially have the state just kill you and move on to the next one? It was uh, it was a mind blowing experience. The first day that that day that you're talking about, July seventeenth, nineteen ninety two, that was the first day that I arrived on death row. And the first day I arrived on death row, they had this practice to where they would introduce you to old Sparky. At the time when I was sentenced to die. I was sent to die by the electric chair. So I got to meet old Sparky my first day of morning, going on the road. So for weeks I had nightmares about being strapped in the old Sparky and being executed that way. You know, I just, I can't recall when I, when I finally got a chance to sleep through the night. It was, it was that long because I was surrounded by death. I was surrounded by guys that had the same type of symptoms that I had. And trying to talk to them about some of the things that I was feeling, I couldn't talk to them about it. And I couldn't write home and talk to my family them about it because I didn't want to cause them any more pain. So I had to deal with it. And it was one of those situations to where every time I closed my eyes, I, I saw what my face looked like. And during that time, and I still feel this way today, that was the appropriate sentence for me. I was, it, was, it was justified. A life for a life. That was the right sentence. I've never disputed that. I've never said anything. So... Whatever it was that I had to experience during that time, I was okay with it. And it was never a moment of peace. Because at any time, they could have came and opened the door and said, it's time for you to take the walk to the, to the death camp. That's what my constant fear was every day. It was when was it going to happen? Because I really didn't understand the whole process about appeals or anything like that because I had never been in prison before. 
So, so in 2009, you get the news that your sentence is being commuted to life. So I'm sure that weight on your chest from being on death row, you know, I'm sure you could feel like you could sleep again and breathe again. What was that like knowing you were going to essentially not be executed in an electric chair and serve the rest of your days in prison, potentially getting out one day, should something happen with your appeals or your case? It has never really, it has never been about me. It's always been about my mom, which is the victim, and my family members, and all the other people that was part of my mom's life because they was victimized as well because of my choice. It's always been about them. The life that I've lived in here has always been about them, me trying not to hurt them anymore, me trying to protect them as best as I could to, uh, to where they wouldn't feel hurt anymore, even though that was something that they was going to constantly have to you know, deal with. The fact that I took my mom's life, I took my aunt's her sister's life, my uncle's, his sister's life, uh, everybody that it affected, you know, that I heard them. And knowing that I wasn't going to be executed because of it, you know, that gave some people in my life a sense of relief. And that's all that matters it, to me. That's all I cared about. You know, I cared about how they felt if they was okay with the sentence. Because I didn't want to hurt them anymore than what I've already hurt them, if that makes sense. So essentially, you've been in prison for uh, 29 years. I was two months old when you had committed the murder. So you've been locked up for 29 years now for the murder of your mother. What do you think you could have done or people could have done to prevent this murder from happening? The only way anybody could have helped me that, at that time is if somebody could have... My mom was on the right path. My mom was... She was trying to talk to me about what it was. And I, I was just too ashamed to tell her that I was addicted to this drug. I was, I was too ashamed to tell her that I cared more about that drug than I cared about anything else. Had I been able to tell my mom that I firmly believed that at that time, she would have been able to figure out a way to help. As far as what that help would have looked like, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what that help would have looked like back then. But just having that conversation with her, you know, it could have opened some doors to where I could have got some help. I don't know if treatment was available back then like it is today. But, but since no one, since I was unable to have that conversation with anyone during that time, you know, the sad reality is, you know, my mom lost her life because I didn't have that conversation with her. Uh, I didn't know how, you know, I didn't, I didn't even know how to ask for help like I do today, uh, as crazy as it sounds about what I'm about to say, my mom gave her life to save my life. And I know that sounds crazy, but that's just, you know, 
that's what the truth looks like. Before we end this, is there anything you would like to say, get out to the public, anything to get off your chest? People, people are falling victim to being addicted to whatever drug that they're being addicted to. And part of the reason why they're unable to ask for help is because of the guilt and the shame that is associated with that. Because when you tell a person that you're addicted to something, normally people look at you like, and in and, and, and a way of disgust, like they're disgusted with the choices that you made. Part of the reason why I chose was, was because I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to cope with my father dying. Now I'm not saying that that's, that was the right choice. It definitely wasn't the right choice, but that was how I cope with his death. That was how, that was how I cope with death period because prior to my father dying, it was my grandfather. So those were the only two strong both male figures in my life at that time. And, and they both died of cancer. So that's what I chose. I, cho- I chose, I chose drugs to cope. That was my coping mechanism. And I know now that the choices that I made, but when you're dealing with people that are dealing with addiction, it's not that they're trying to make it. I mean, you know, when we're trapped in that state of mind, we make excuses for our, for our, you know, our choices. We, we try to run from that. Um, there's a lot, there's a lot of underlying issues that we're struggling with that we can't get in front of at that time because our minds are clouded by that addiction. And, you know, when you try to tell your loved ones that you need help, that's a hard thing to do. It's not always an easy thing to do. And when people hear that, I just wish that they would have more of a loving spirit and embrace their loved ones and try to help them to overcome some of those obstacles that they're they're dealing with, you know, that they're dealing with because without their love and support, we probably wouldn't even be able to get through it. You know, but at the end of the day, it's gotta be on that person that had it, that wants help. When you hit your rock bottom, and my rock bottom was taking my mom's life, that was the only way that I could get help. But like I said, at that time, during that time, no one really knew what to do, I don't believe. I mean, I could be wrong. There, there could have been some places out there that could have helped me with that addiction. I don't know. But knowing what I know today, um, there was help out there for me. I just didn't know how to get to that place and say I need help. That was my interview with convicted Ohio murderer Jeffrey Hill, who is now a free man as of September 1st, 2020. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. I'm forbidden.